0: Even when you have a good pitcher metric, can it be adjusted? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now.
2: And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 16th. It's show number 44 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal about roster management, about that pitcher metric, some questions taken from the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and his 2017 Picks and Pans. We'll also have player news from the National League, with Harold Nichols looking at Garrett Cole, Derek Law, and more. And from the American League, it'll be Jock Thompson looking at Byron Buxton's hot September, Danny Salazar's season-ending injury, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at San Francisco's closer carousel and some speed options in Kansas City. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Cincinnati second baseman Jose Peraza and Los Angeles right-handed starter Brock Stewart. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including some 2017 auditions, like a Saturday National League matchup with Pittsburgh right-hander Jamison Tyon in Cincinnati to face the Reds right-hander Anthony DiSclafani. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The American League wildcard is really tightening up, and that means we gotta talk some baseball. As you probably know, on Thursday, the Cubs clinched the National League Central, and it won't be long before that cheap champagne is flowing in the locker rooms of the Nationals, Rangers, and Cleveland, with the Dodgers soon to follow. The AL East, however, is going right down to the wire in an exciting race that has seen the rebuilding Yankees force their way into the discussion. All of that leaves the wild cards. Looks like a three-team tussle in the National with the Giants, Mets, and Cardinals. And you want to bet that if St. Louis makes it, at least 25 websites and newspapers will run headlines saying wild cards? The real fun though is going to be in that American League wild card. Six teams are within four games of a wild card slot. The Orioles and Jays have the top two spots as we speak, but the surging Tigers, Mariners and Yankees are all within three. The stumbling Astros are four games out and the staggering Royals are six behind. I have to say, I'm not a fan of the wild card system, and even less of the one-game playoff round. But I will admit, it's creating a lot of added excitement and interest in the game, especially for those of us in fantasy who are looking at our own standing spots and wishing we had a wild card race to play in. And so on to our show. In the first inning of this Friday edition, it's our League Watch News Reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Oh, thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here, but sad that's the second to last show.
0: Well, could be worse. Could be the last show, and that's next week, and we can cry on each other's shoulders then. Hey, listen, before uh, before I get to the players that we want to talk about this week, Nick, uh, I always ask our special guest experts how their fantasy teams are doing, but I never ask you or Jock. So uh, fill us in. Are you in the race in any of your leagues?
3: Yeah, I'm in the race. My leagues work on work on half seasons, and one of them won won the um i've got five teams one of them won the first half and in the second half i've got a bunch of teams that are all hanging around five and six games out of first place we do a, a, a game by game thing with two weeks to go they could catch up it just depends on how the other guys do i had a had a lousy week last week so dropped me from a game out and several things to five games out and so we'll see how it goes
0: do the first place and second place winners face off in some way for for the championship or do you just issue two championships
3: no, they do. The first half and second half winners face off for uh, in the uh, in a in a playoff. So I've got at least one of those coming up, and maybe maybe more.
0: And if you win both ends, uh, you just don't bother.
3: No, then you face off with the American League team on the American League side. These are these are NL and AL only things. So if you win both ends, you don't bother. Yeah, if you win both halves, you don't have to do the uh, have to do the face off. So
0: the big grand final, yeah. So it's like the uh, World Series uh, playoff setup back in the fifties and sixties when it was just. Uh, one team won and went on, and or maybe more like the 70s when the East played the West and the winners went on to play the World Series.
3: There you go. You got that. That's how it works.
0: We're always looking for players at this late stage. You mentioned that you're in a close race. I'm in a very tight race in my league. It's a six-way battle for second spot with two points separating all six of us. So we're always on the lookout for players who can help even in this abbreviated time. And of course... Those of us who are out of the running, I guess, are also looking at potential keepers for next year, if you can stash them away now. I noticed uh, the other day San Francisco Giants activated relief pitcher Derek Law from the 15-day DL. He had a sore elbow. Rob Carroll covered the story for playing time today. Uh, Is Derek Law someone we should be interested in, either for the last couple of weeks of this regular season or for next year?
3: Yeah, Derek Law is somebody we need to keep an eye on, especially over these last couple of weeks, because the Giants are... Uh, The Giants are trying to grab hold of a wild card spot and uh, lots of things. In in that kind of situation, you use the hot hand to try to make sure you're doing well. And Derek Law has been that. Um, Coming off the DL, had an an elbow problem. Uh, But before the the DL injury, he had pitched his way into the setup role. Uh, Ten holds, an 8.3 dom, a 5.2 command, 50% ground ball rate, uh, a 1.94 ERA, uh, and a, a whip below one. So He's been pitching very, very well, and they've had some problems at the back end of the bullpen. Uh, Santiago Garcia allowed four and runs over four innings in his last five games. Hunter Strickland had a September 13th disaster, four in runs in two-thirds of an inning. So uh, all kinds of bad things going on in San Francisco at the moment. Derek Law might find himself in a position to save a game or two or three uh, as we head into these final couple of weeks.
0: There's a lot to like when you look at Derek Law's skills roster. You mentioned some of the things, Nick. I'll throw in a 0.4 home run per nine rate, which is really good, although it could be because of a relatively low home run for fly ball rate, which is a bit concerning. But he's not likely to give up a lot of home runs, only 27% fly balls in the first place, and a 50% ground ball rate. And, boy, that's something you really have to like.
3: Yeah, very definitely. And as you're looking ahead to next season, uh, you've got to take those numbers with you, and and this is a guy you could tuck away because – he could uh, find himself in a good spot next year.
0: We have to say that if you're looking for a, you know, a Roldis Chapman or a Craig Kimbrell type of reliever who's going to also help you pile up a ton of strikeouts, uh, this guy is probably not that. He's a, he's under a strikeout per inning. Most of those high strikeout guys are 1.1 or 1.2 per inning. He's around right around 9 per 9 innings, so that's, you know, going to be a strikeout per inning. But overall, in 5 by 5 formats, even counting the reduced strikeouts, uh, Derek Law has been an $8 pitcher in the national league and in five by five leagues. That's terrific for a guy who's not getting saves.
3: Yeah, it really is very, it really is terrific for a guy who's not getting saves. So someone to, someone to look at and someone who may still be under the radar in a lot of leagues.
0: And certainly if you can stash him for this year at a reasonable price, and then hold on to him for next year. This could be a guy, uh, if you get him on your roster for a buck or two, could end up being a closer out there, as you said. Boy, I like a lot about Derek Law right now, except for the injury, of course. Elbows are always concerning, as we'll talk about it later. Um, Michael Franco coming into the season, Nick. I remember us talking about him. We thought he was a target because he seemed to be heading all in the right direction. And for the first part of the season, he looked terrific. He had five home runs early on, 299 average, all of these terrific performances. But he's been terrible in the second half. He's not going to live up to his draft day cost. Brian Rudd covered this in Facts and Flukes. Does Michael Franco's poor second half create a buying opportunity for next year?
3: Yeah, I think it probably does if you look at uh, at what Michael Franco has has dealt with. I mean, first of all, we're dealing with a 23-year-old ball player, so you've got to always remember that. Young guys, uh, especially young guys with with the limited experience, are prone to ups and downs and slumps and, and various problems. Second half has not been good for Michael Franco. First half, 14 home runs, 258 batting average, 45 RBIs you thought yeah not not too bad for a young guy in a half but second half down to eight home runs 232 batting average uh that does not look so good but that's been the result of a, a 25% hit rate his xba is at 266 so almost 30 34 points above his actual batting average contact rate is actually up in the second half 84% contact rate compared to 79% in the first half. So, yeah, I think a buying opportunity for Michael Franco. Here's a guy who's still growing, has um, as, as gone into a bit of a sophomore slump in the second half, and um, certainly someone who should bounce back very well next season.
0: You mentioned his contact rate, it's over 80% for the year in modern baseball, that's terrific, and it really establishes kind of a floor of consistency, at least for batting average, and from that, a lot of other things can develop.
3: It can indeed. I think the thing Michael Franco's got to do, as you look at what happened in the second half, he wasn't being very patient. 8% walk rate in the first half, down to 4% in the second half, and he's got to get back to probably pressing a bit, trying to reproduce those, the first half success, and Uh, certainly he's got to get back to being a little more patient at the plate and waiting for the right pitch, uh, so that he can do what he was doing in the first half. And that certainly comes with growth and experience.
0: The other thing I noticed too is that his fly ball rate has declined since his 2014 rookie season. It was 40% then, it was 35% last year, around 37 this year. I think he's going to have to make some swing adjustments if he wants to become a power hitter, but on the other hand, if he wants to take advantage of his other skills, maybe a ground ball line drive mix is going to serve him and his fantasy owners a little better in helping his batting average while getting him, you know, a respectable number of home runs even if we don't expect, you know, 25 plus. Right, yeah, it might indeed. He's got 22 this year. It is a it is a career high, so that's something to, to look forward to. I think Michael uh, Franco is going to be a bargain next year in a lot of drafts. You might be able to get him at a reduced dollar cost if you're in the auction format or later than you might have expected in a straight draft format. Uh, over to Pittsburgh, second baseman Josh Harrison has a right groin injury. Looks like it's going to sideline him for the next four to six weeks, in other words, the rest of the regular season. Rick Green of BaseballHQ.com covered this story in playing time today. What's going on?
3: Well, you know, Josh Harrison is done for for the year, and so what that's going to mean is a lot of playing time for Sean Rodriguez as we head into the stretch. I mean, we've bumped Sean Rodriguez playing time time way up um, for the remainder of the season. Sean Rodriguez is a, is a kind of an interesting guy. He's got some. He's got got excellent power. Uh, the problem with Sean Rodriguez has always been whether he can not he can hit for a batting average. And over short periods of time, he's been able to do that. Over the last month in Pittsburgh, uh, 12 hits and 40 at bats, a 300 batting average, uh, 259 batting average for the year, 14 home runs, and only 243 at bats. So here's a guy that can do some damage, and as long as he doesn't go into a prolonged slump, could have some, some real value down the stretch.
0: This is the second time that Josh Harrison's missed a significant amount of playing time. Uh, Last year, he had a problem with a thumb injury. I I wonder, how do you think that affects uh, his value for next year?
3: Well, I think it does. I mean, you've got to, uh, and it may affect whether or not you want Josh Harrison for next year. You know, one of the the old maxims we've got at Baseball HQ that I remember back from years and years ago was uh, uh, constantly injured guys don't suddenly get healthy. Uh, And we're beginning to maybe beginning to see that with Josh Harrison. I mean, he's a guy with a uh, with a a repeated injury history now, uh, and maybe he's not the kind of guy you're going to be able to count on for 500 bats from here on out.
0: And so we're not saying don't get him, but you have to discount his playing time and therefore you have to discount his ability to amass counting stacks. Uh, They also have a rookie. Alan Hansen, was called up. Uh, Any any reason to get excited about him?
3: I don't think so at the moment. I, I don't think there's uh, he's got some playing time gain on Alan Hansen, but um, and the Pirates may, but the Pirates may in fact want to get a look at him. But um, at this point, uh, I don't think somebody you want to get really excited about.
0: More bad news for the Pirates' right-handed starting pitcher Garrett Cole, a former top draft pick. He was reinstated from the 15-day DL on Monday earlier this week, and he faced the Phillies, got crushed. Uh, this is a second bad outing in a row because just before the DL, he gave up five runs in five innings. He shut down for the year and they're calling it elbow inflammation. What's the story here with Garrett Cole? Well,
3: you know, Garrett Cole has not had the year we expected him to have. He went into the year. If you go back and look at the forecaster, this was the guy who had an upside of a Cy Young award and certainly has not done that. I mean, we've been looking at a 3.88 ERA for the season seven, seven and 10 record, um, 85 BPV, certainly not one of the standout pitchers in the national league. And, um, the thing that's really worrisome, when I hear elbow problems, and these are elbow, continuing elbow problems, I worry about that. You know, the uh, the, the Pirates GM said he could, should I be able to have a normal off season, and then are just going to rest this elbow and everything should be okay, and that's possible. But I really worry about elbow injuries uh, and certainly don't want to pay a premium price for a guy with an elbow problem.
0: Well, as I've said before here on Baseball HQ Radio, uh, and I've read this when uh, people who are aware about injury effects on pitchers. I, I read a lot about that as much as I can. And the the mantra is, if you have a shoulder problem, it manifests itself as a speed decline. And if you have elbow problems, it manifests as uh, issues with control. And I noticed that last year when Garrett Cole was making his case as a Cy Young-level pitcher, his walk rate was down under two per nine innings. This year, it's almost three per nine innings. Still good but it's a step in the wrong direction and i wonder if that elbow barking is starting to cause some problems with his ability to find the plate.
3: Yeah, i'm sure it is. And if you look at the last the last 30 days for Garrett Cole, that walk rate is up to 5 per 9 innings. So, um you know, certainly that is it that that elbow is definitely causing some control issues.
0: His ERA is almost 4, his expected ERA is just over 4, so it looks like his skills decline is fairly represented in his ERA. So the question for us going into next year is, can he resume his 2015 level of play, or is it going to be a, a, a recurrence of 2016? And that's a tough question to answer.
3: It is a tough question to answer. You know, you go into it with, with uh, I, I think I would go into a draft with Garrett Cole next year, looking at a guy, certainly with some upside, he might suddenly return to what he was doing before. But the question is, can he do that over? Over a long period of time, or um, you know, is, is that something that's just not going to? Uh, is he is he going to have elbow problems and wind up with uh, Tommy John surgery or something like that?
0: Well, as we said earlier about Josh Harrison, it becomes a risk versus reward question. You're going to get a discount of some kind, and the question is, can you accept the remaining risk given the value of the discount? Certainly, if anybody bids all the way up to $27 or $28, which was his 2015 value, I don't think that that's a reasonable bid to contest. Although in certain auction situations, if he's the last ace quality guy there, you might find yourself forced to do it. So my advice would be don't find yourself being forced to do that. Get somebody a little more reliable if you're willing to spend close to $30 on a pitcher. Yeah, that makes, makes absolute sense in this case. All right, Nick, thanks a million. Good luck the rest of the way. We'll talk to you again one more time next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at baseballhq.com, and of course, our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. How are your team's doing?
4: Okay, I am firmly out of the money in one of my leagues. Uh, my pitching, uh, obviously, I had uh, I had Garrett Cole and uh, Jordan Zimmerman. Say no more. Um, and. Uh, that leg actually I'm in the running to uh, to get the one of the first picks in the dra- in our supplemental draft next year so I'm happy about that my other leg much better I'm in first place I'm barely hanging on uh, the uh Boston torching my closer last night and denying me a win from Masahiro Tanaka didn't help me I'm hanging on by the the skin of my teeth but uh, the skin of my <laughs> the skin of my teeth um but um Um, I've only got two weeks to go, two plus weeks to go. So I think I can hold on even a little longer
0: there. I mentioned in the introduction, this excitement that's stemming from the wild card race and even the American league East race with this suddenly resurgent New York Yankees. And they did something this week that I found really weird. They signed Billy Butler who got released by Oakland. Uh, Before we talk about the impact on the Yankees in fantasy, what was Oakland thinking here?
4: Well, this one was interesting. Like you said, uh, Butler's production and skills haven't been any different than they were in the season before Oakland signed him, except that he has about 300 less at bats. And as you and I have talked about him off and on, uh, he's still not hitting enough fly balls to take advantage of his typically good hard contact, Uh, has a line drive boost this year, it's, it's helped his batting average rebound, he's hitting about 280, but no speed or defensive skills to speak of. I think Oakland saw that 29 home run year from 2012 and hoped somehow they could coax more power out of Butler, and that didn't happen. In fact, he's gone backwards. The, the power is decidedly average it, at best, and, and it seems to be trending downward. They took a lot of heat for signing Butler two years ago to that three-year, $30 million deal uh, given their professed bargain basement approach to free agent signs. He hasn't produced at all for them, and that scuffle he had last month with Danny Valencia, Danny Valencia probably gave them more unwanted publicity. Given that Oakland is a long ways off from contending and have, has plenty of DH options, including Chris Davis and Valencia and Stephen Vogue, and given that they wanted to get their first looks at uh, some of their prospects, I think they've just decided finally that they were better off just closing the book on butler and calling it a bad move
0: couple of interesting things I'd like to comment on what you said. First of all, uh, one of the hardest lessons for organizations to learn is to understand a sunk cost. They made a bet on Billy Butler. It clearly didn't pay off for them in terms of power or run production. And if they were looking back at 2012, uh, that's an interesting year for Billy Butler for me because I had Billy Butler that year and he really helped my team. I got him for a dollar near the uh, end of the auction because By that time, nobody really believed in him that much because he was just not producing anything. And here he comes with 29 homers and 107 RBIs. But when I look back on it, I never had him again until this year where I got him as a desperation move, when I look back on it, he was only hitting 29% fly balls in that 29 home run year. That means that a lot of his fly balls were going out, and indeed his home run per fly ball rate was almost uh, 21%. That was not sustainable. I should have realized it. Everybody should have realized it at the time, including the Oakland A's, because they're supposed to be smarter about this sort of thing.
4: Yeah, you're right. Um, The other interesting thing about Butler back then is, and and, and as you've noted, we've talked about this a lot, uh, um, his hard contact rate has been amazing. He does hit the ball hard, even though he can't get any loft on it. And up to that point, even before two twelve, he was hitting – Three hundred and two ninety, 290 pretty regularly. Now he's dipped ever since then. He's hitting, he's still hitting a decent 277 this year, but when you're not hitting home runs and you don't have any speed and you can't play any defense, your value is pretty limited.
0: Also, uh, something else about Billy Butler that frustrates his owner's fantasy and in, in the real world and really limits his run in RBI production is he hits into a ton of double plays. He's a big, heavy guy. He hits a lot of ground balls, and he hits them hard. And the the absolute tailor-made double play ball is a hard-hit ground ball because you know you have lots of time to force the guy at second, and then you could pretty much uh, send the ball over to first by courier by the time Butler lumbers down the line. So uh, all those double plays really kill a lot of rallies, and uh, and they really limit his uh, his uh, counting stats in, in fantasy purposes.
4: Yeah, he's a base clogger, straight and simple. And when you when you have a ground ball rate as he has had most of his career, and like I said, he's doing a lot better this year. It's 42 percent, but He's been at 50% average for the last four years. It's just not going to help his overall game.
0: I'm curious what you think about what the Yankees were looking for in Billy Butler, and I'm even more curious about whether you think Butler can be a fantasy asset uh, beyond the fact that the pinstripes make him look thinner.
4: Well Butler's still only thirty years old and he has a lot of major league experience. I think the pickup was in large part fueled by the Yankees' surprising surge back into playoff contention following their trade deadline sell-off and the fact that, that he cost them nothing. I mean Oakland's still paying the freight here. The Yankees could even bring him back next season if you think about it, given their questions at first base, you've got to share a retiring uh I, I, I'm not sure what McCann's uh, contract uh, situation is. He's their he's their DH. You've got Greg Bird potentially coming back from injury, but nobody is really is really proven there. Butler doesn't have any platoon splits. He hits righties as well as lefties. He's still hitting around 280 uh, against both of them. Although you'd, you'd honestly expect uh, the Yankees to maybe find better corner outfield or uh, outfield. Not likely. Corner first base and DH help during the off season. This gives them a chance to observe Butler up close and personal, maybe for the, past, for the final three, four weeks of the season. Um, obviously, we, we've talked about his swing. He gets no loft. If someone could, un- could unlock that, uh, it would be interesting. I don't expect it to happen. He's 30 years old. Uh, I think Butler is what he is, but I don't think it costs the Yankees to do anything uh, to do what they've done
0: certainly doesn't cost them anything in money I I also heard I believe that Aaron Judge is going to be missing some time or um, is going to be out of the lineup I don't know what that means for him for 2017 but it's another power bat that they're not going to have you were right about McCann I think he's a free agent after this year pretty unlikely to re-sign with New York
4: yeah okay and so there you go I mean basically what's happening is the Yankees first base and DH situation are Pretty much totally up in the air next year and this gives them a chance to at least give Butler some sort of an audition.
0: And I've just checked uh, Aaron Judge's out for the year with a strained oblique, so there should be some playing time available for Billy Butler. I don't know if it makes him a fantasy asset. I know in deep leagues, in uh, American League only, he might be worth something depending on who he's replacing. Uh, You mentioned that Billy Butler's only 30. I find that weird, too. It seems like he's been around since the uh, A's were wearing handlebar mustaches and winning the World Series. Uh, Over in Cleveland, the Indians got some terrible news. Danny Salazar's going to miss the rest of the season with what is being called a mild forearm strain and jock correct me if i'm wrong but a mild forearm strain is often a precursor to elbow trouble tommy john and that kind of thing uh, cleveland's 6 game lead in the american league central gives them some flexibility and breathing room but he also missed a couple of weeks in early august with an elbow problem everybody involved with danny salazar has to be really concerned uh, leaving that aside what are the indians going to do about their rotation they're headed for the playoffs.
4: Yeah, and and like you said, fortunately, they had that big lead with only two-plus weeks to go. It's going to take a complete uh, tailspin for them to lose it, it seems. Uh, That's not a particularly competitive division right now. Um, From a fantasy standpoint, they're going to go with Mike Clevenger, who's probably going to go four or five innings, perhaps more if he can stretch out. You and I have talked about Clevenger before on HQ Radio. He's he's struggled early in his major league uh, career this year. He's gotten a little better. He he misses bats uh, his last three starts. I think he's averaged over 10 strikeouts. Per, per nine innings but he hasn't been able to go very deep in the games he, he's got elevated pitch counts his biggest problem is that he walks too many hitters and he's subject to the occasional long ball Cle- clevenger's the kind of guy who i would love to see in the bullpen uh, um, in the minors he, uh, he, he limited his home runs he's always missed bats he has good velocity um, i'm not sure how much fantasy help he's going to be this year because he seems to be not going more than five innings any of his starts um, postseason-wise, obviously, the Tribe would love to have Salazar back as its number three option behind Kluber and Carrasco, particularly over Trevor Bauer and Josh Tomlin, both of whom have really struggled. But uh, for the next two and a half weeks, uh, this, is, this is the only other option in Cleveland that, uh, that uh, fantasy owners seem to have, at least for the rotation.
0: I know this is going to sound like a long shot, but Zach McAllister in the Cleveland bullpen has some starting experience. Is there any chance that he could draw in? And what about Cody Anderson?
4: Yeah, he does. Um, I mean, McAllister is actually, uh, he does have some, uh, some starting uh, experience. Obviously, he's been better um, in the, uh, the rotate. I'm sorry, outside of the rotation in the bullpen. He's got a 3.88 ERA right now, 4.51 XERA, expected ERA. I'm not sure Cleveland would do that just because their bullpen right now is a strength, and they may want to keep that set up. Uh, they're pretty much in the waning days of the of the pennant race now, with a six-game lead. I think they or a six-game lead. I think they can afford to keep trotting out uh, Clevenger out there and their other starters, and then bring in their bullpen as they uh, as they see fit.
0: Through the early part of the season, Jock Minnesota outfielder Byron Buxton, a top prospect. Not too long ago, but he was adding to his reputation as a huge bust. Uh, But lately, the last couple of weeks, he's really been changing the story. What's going on with Byron Buxton?
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Like we've talked about him, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We've been waiting for him forever, and and again, it didn't look like it was coming. Uh, He didn't have a great first season last year. He started this year really slowly. Lots of strikeouts. Twenty-four strikeouts, in fact, in his first forty-nine plate appearances. Sent back to AAA, recalled in late May. A little bit better. Um, he hit 193 um, in uh, in uh, uh, through early August. Uh, uh, improved his contact, but he was still striking out a third of the time. Demoted again, and now he's returned in September. collops and all of a sudden, something seems different.
0: Boy, does it ever! It, I looked at it, and I couldn't decide whether to call it interesting or weird. It, on September 1st, he comes back to the big leagues and it's like someone threw a switch, and all of a sudden, instead of being uh, a bad ball player, he looks like the second coming of Sammy Sosa. He's ripping the ball. He's hitting home runs. He's been changed in the batting order to a run-producing position. Has Byron Buxton finally arrived?
4: I think there's still causes for concern. Uh, He's he's still striking out too much. Even even in this September, he's striking out in a third of his plate appearances. His hit rate is around 45%, uh, and that 1200 uh, OPS is 150 points better than David Ortiz. These are all really high, and they don't seem sustainable. Now that being said, and something you and I talked about before, he is an immensely skilled baseball player. He has tremendous power. Um, he can overcome some of these some of these uh, basic skill defi- uh, basic BPI deficiencies over the short term. But it's like I think we've talked about before. He can't do this over the long haul.
0: Well, I guess that's the question. How much of it can he retain for the long haul? I don't think anybody believes that he's going to be, you know, what would you say, 150 points better OPS than David Ortiz for a whole season. I don't think anybody's expecting he's going to be, you know, 70 points better than Mike Trout in in his hit rate, 45% right now, which is ridiculous. But I understand that there's – reason to be concerned as you mentioned i think those are valid concerns but we're all looking at byron buxton now for next season and uh are there any more positive signs as we consider where to slot him on our cheat sheets on our budget sheets as we start considering the 2017 fantasy baseball draft
4: oh sure and he could like you've like we've talked about he could lose a whole bunch of points on that um september ops and still be very good uh, uh, the potential's obviously there he's reportedly brought back a leg kick that he used with success as a young player but of course that the twins coached out of him back then his walk rate uh, he's obviously being more patient it's eight uh, percent in uh, in september where he's hit his five home runs um, he's showing uh, power against both righties and lefties um, and he's a great defender uh, and that should keep him in the lineup during short slumps
0: yeah, I think that's a point not to be overlooked as he enters into his third year in the big leagues. I think Minnesota's going to realize they have to be patient with him because he's such a run saver in center field. I'm, I'm having Joe Sheehan on next week as the special guest on the last edition of the regular season for Baseball HQ Radio. And Joe's newsletter, he talked about Byron Buxton and said, if you compare Buxton's overall run value, including his defensive run value in center field because he goes and gets the ball and he's a terrific outfielder throwing the ball and all of these things he's actually a much better outfielder than a lot of guys even if he doesn't hit at all
4: agree and it's ironic we've talked about how productive he's been he's been this september it's all been in the power and the patience and the inflated hit rate has driven up the batting average the power buxton's power is very very real the one thing he hasn't done is something that he he's done all season and that's steel bases he's He has nine stolen bases this season in very limited playing time. Hasn't stolen anything in September. Um, He has huge
0: upside. So how aggressively would you chase him in next year's draft?
4: Well, I'm going to ask you that question. I want to turn it on you. Um, How aggressively would you chase him in next year's draft? Um, you, you, You are in more draft leagues than I am. I'm in a keeper league. I own Buxton. I still like him. He's 22. I'm going to hold on to it.
0: Oh, I'm sure anybody who has him at any kind of decent price will hold on to him. Yeah, you're right. I only play in a redraft league, so I have to make the decision every year about how much to pay for a guy and how much I like him and so forth. And, Jock, normally I'm pretty risk-averse when I'm looking at young players who are unproven. And to me, Byron Buxton is still unproven. I know he's got pedigree. I know he's got skills. I know he's got that prospect cachet, and maybe he's going to follow the Alex Rodriguez 10-step path where you start off bad and gradually... Get good. I understand all of that, but I still don't think that he's proven anything to me. And I have a worry about the Twins' inability to develop prospects. You mentioned earlier that they coached Buxton out of using a leg kick that he used as a timing device that was really helping him be a good hitter in the minors and earlier in his career. And they tell him to stop doing it, and he stops hitting. And finally, they have a track record of real impatience. They bounce potentially useful players to the minors at the slightest hint of underperformance. A a little short slump, boom, down you go, Aaron Hicks. And you get replaced by proven, experienced mediocrities like Robbie Grossman. This is a team that needs to build its prospects and just never seems to have the hang of doing it. Hey, they parted ways with David Ortiz back in the day. I know it's not the same bunch of uh, people running the team, but still... I read that Paul Molitor was pleased that Buxton is being more aggressive at the plate. And, Jock, I don't know about you, but it seems to me when you've got a guy striking out a third of the time, he needs to be less aggressive and more choosy.
4: Yeah, this is the one thing I can't wrap my my head around is this contact rate. If you look at all of his months this year, it's never been higher than 68%. That was in July. He hit 214 in July at 65% now when he's hitting 347. I don't think that 347 is going to last. I think you're right. That still bothers me a whole bunch.
0: All that said, though, Jock, I think it's clearly a very promising situation. Uh, Tory Hunter, I read somewhere, called Buxton the second Mike Trout. And I think that's extreme hyperbole. I mean, Trout was an MVP candidate when he was 20 years old, Buxton's 22. But the fact that Buxton is 22 should count in his favor, I think. Major League Baseball is really hard. And sometimes it takes a little longer for these young men to figure it out, to get comfortable in their own skin, to trust their own swing, and not some guy on the Minnesota Twins coaching staff who says, stop raising your leg when you swing the bat. He strikes out too much. You're absolutely right. But he's only got 400 big league plate appearances. I've done research for Baseball HQ that says the time to nab a young player is in the year that he gets to 800 major league plate appearances. Buxton's at 400. If he plays somewhat regularly next year, he'll hit 800. I think next year, and especially the year after, Byron Buxton's going to be really something. I'll bid to the mid-teens because of the possibility of 30 stolen bases, 20 home runs, but I don't think I'm willing to go into the 20s because of all those risks, the organization, the strikeouts, the current run of good luck. I don't know. It, to me, it just seems like it's too risky to to bid a lot of money and have it go south.
4: Yeah, basically, you're right. I'm with you, too. I think over the long term, he's going to be a much better player than he'll likely be next year. Mike Trout was a freak uh, uh, in terms of his development. Byron Buxton doesn't have the contact or, the, or the, the pitch selection that Mike Trout had at a very, very early age. That said, Byron Buxton's got a lot of skill. He's 22 years old. Even if he doesn't reach his complete ceiling, I'm in a keeper league. I can hold him forever, and that's probably what I'm going to do at least for the next three, four years.
0: Jock, the Royals were sneaking back into the American League wild card race. Then they got some really terrible news. Lorenzo Cain has some kind of wrist injury. He's only played once in September, and now the story is he's probably going to be sidelined for the rest of the season. This is really bad, as I said, for Kansas City, but it it leaves them bereft of a key talent on their roster. Somebody's got to take his place. I presume we're talking about Paulo Orlando and Jared Dyson.
4: Yeah, they've been getting um, all of the center field playing time so far in Kane's absence. Uh, Orlando's been surprisingly productive uh, this year. He, it's been His numbers have been fueled by good speed and a fortunate hit rate. I think he's hitting about 294. His hit rate uh, is in the upper 30s, uh, mid-30s. Uh, Dyson is still Dyson. Uh, um, he's still chugging along. He's hitting 260. He's stolen 27 stolen bases and less than 300 at-bats. If you look back over the last three years, this has been a typical Dyson season. Uh, And now with uh, KC losing games regularly again, they just got stomped on by Oakland. Their their pitching has just fallen apart. They're almost out of contention. Uh, I think they're six games out, uh, and that's just of the division. Um, newly acquired Billy Burns could also get his first extended look as a royal outfielder. And don't forget a guy named Terence Gore, who you might remember from the postseason a few years ago. He's actually already swiped six bases in September, largely as a pinch runner. He only has two at bats. So, if you're looking for speed right now, and, and, and particularly in the outfield, there, there appear to be plenty of stolen base options in Kansas City for these final two weeks
0: yeah especially considering the fact that they have 40 guys on the uh, on the team they don't have to cut down to 25 so they have a lot of pinch running opportunities uh, burns and gore are decent in the outfield as well so they can rotate around they can start orlando or dyson or whoever and then they can pinch run for the for the catcher they got a lot of things they can do to get stolen bases uh terrence gore can't hit but he can steal bases you said Two at-bats and six bags. That's what you call efficiency. Yeah,
4: pretty amazing. Uh, if, if you're in a batting average race, uh, don't pick up Terrence Gore, particularly if they start playing him uh, in the absence of Kane because PD's right, he can't hit.
0: But if they don't let him play and he only pinch runs, he's a guy you really should grab because he's not batting at all, which will protect your batting average while he piles up the bases for you. Uh, paradoxically, this could be a bad thing for all four of these guys because it may cut into all their playing time. So nobody plays as much. It kind of is not going to be that great that way. Uh, You mentioned uh, Masahiro Tanaka. Finally, let's talk about him. Essentially, he's the ace of the New York Yankees staff after rehabbing an a elbow problem that he had uh, in his rookie year in Major League Baseball, most people thought he was through or on his way to being through, and instead, he's been one of the best pitchers in the American League, certainly the best pitcher on the New York Yankees rotation. What's going on with Masahiro Tanaka?
4: I, yeah, I realize that I'm biased because I own him in my fa- in uh, my fantasy league, the one that I'm in first place is, and he, he and Corey Kluber, like I said, have been my aces, but I think he's one of the best stories that nobody's talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with his, with his innings pitched. I mean, he's still got more than two weeks. He's going to go over 200 innings this year, and when you think about what happened to him in the middle of his rookie season back in 2014 when he, he, tore, uh, he tore his UCL, and then he rehabbed it. He didn't go for surgery. He rehabbed it, and what he's doing right now, he's got a 2.97 ERA, um, his velocity hasn't uh, ticked down that much at all his, his strikeouts have he's not striking out nearly as many hitters as he, uh, as he was when he came to, uh, to the United States but his effectiveness has just been terrific uh, this is a guy who, who, who has terrific movement on his splitter he has great command I don't think I've ever watched a pitcher this year who, who locates better in all quadrants of the strike zone um, I'm a huge Masahiro Tanaka fan
0: yeah, you know, on the surface, when I look at his skill set, the first thing that jumps out is, in 2014, when he first came to the big leagues, 6 point, I'm sorry, 9.3 strikeouts per nine for a dominance rate. Last year, it was down more than a strikeout per inning at 8.1. And now it's down to 7.4 strikeouts per nine. It The, the dom rate is headed in the wrong direction. And usually, we when we see that, we say, okay, this is a guy to avoid. But this, Tanaka looks like a guy who's very comfortable being a pitcher, Rather than just being a thrower, and I think he was both things when he came into the big leagues. That's why he was so effective. And now, what he's done is very calmly assess his ability, and he's not. He says to himself, "I'm sure I'm not going to strike out as many guys as I did when I was throwing harder. Therefore, I'm going to just do other things to succeed, and he's succeeding with them."
4: Yeah, and if you watch him, just watch him pitch. Um, like I said, he moves the ball. All over the strike zone and he seems to throw the right pitch at the right time it's it's amazing he is a master he is a true pitcher and he's a lot of fun to watch
0: just the other night of course I think he left leading after a really terrific performance against the Red Sox and then the uh, bullpen imploded and the Red Sox scored five in the ninth to steal a, a ridiculous victory but one more thing about Tanaka that I I know we don't we say don't chase wins but Tanaka has been pretty good at getting wins every year he's been in the 13 12 range all three years he should have 14 right now this year and he could easily finish with 15 16 wins if everything breaks right on run scoring and bullpen and that kind of thing
4: yeah it's pretty stunning because the Yankee offense hasn't been all that for most of the year but he's had that good bullpen uh around him for most of the year until obviously last night so uh yeah a lot of his value is is built into that 13 win total but uh I'll tell you what he's uh uh 194 innings. uh, I'm duly, duly impressed.
0: $24 season so far for Masahiro Tanaka. I'll be curious to see what people think next year. It'll certainly be different than it was this. Jock Thompson, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again one more time during the regular season next week on Baseball HQ Radio.
4: Sounds good, PD. See you next week.
0: Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis and a speculator columnist at the site. And of course, he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll have a quick break, then we'll be back with Michael Salfino next on Baseball HQ Radio.
5: Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th at Scottsdale, It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona, come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Michael Salfino, who writes for Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal, and has been a past guest on our show. Michael, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Pleasure to be here, Patrick.
0: Before we get started, how are your fantasy baseball teams doing?
2: Not that great, actually. My score sheet team, I bet on Michael Brantley. To return from his shoulder injury and uh, as a result my team is like uh, just a few games over 500 with Brantley I think I would have had a really good chance for contention I also lost Lance McCullers um, and Jacob DeGrom has been struggling that's a 2014 league so you know it's hard to replace those guys um, and in my dynasty league I'm in a total rebuild so uh, that that pretty much is going, like, as expected. I won that league a couple years ago. It's just fun sometimes to just cleanse the palate, start fresh, get all new guys. And uh, so that's what I did. So, you know, the the rebuild there has been fun. So I would say that that season has been kind of successful because I like some of the players that I have on that team. Um, the score sheet team, I've been kind of half-weighing it where, where I'm just pretty much playing for um, – I'm trying to still get guys like when we have our supplemental drafts who are going to help me minor leaguers in the future, even though my team was in pseudo contention, I just sort of never believed it kind of like the Mets, you know, it's kind of like, do we believe that the Mets are actually a contending team? They are, they are in the playoffs, but it just seems like, um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a fallacy to believe that. And I guess similarly with the Yankees too, because, um, you know, the Yankees obviously essentially punted the season and are in the midst, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of in the midst of, of actual playoff contention completely unexpectedly.
0: When you say your uh, dynasty team is a big rebuild, give us a couple of uh, the guys that you're planning on rebuilding around, usually a dynasty or, or even a regular keeper league type uh, team. If you're rebuilding, you pick two or three guys and say, this is my core, and then you start building around it. Who's your core?
2: Oh man, this league is so deep that you're not going to even know some of these guys. I, I have Trey Turner, for example, like, so everybody knows that. Yeah, That's I know. Obviously work out, but in this league, like, I had to get Trey Turner when he was a freshman at North Carolina State. So, um, you have to, like, act early. So the guys that I'm really excited about are guys like Seth Beer, who very few people have ever heard of, but he might be the best hitter in the history of college baseball. He's pretty much like, um you know mike trout if mike trout went to uh college actually maybe more like harper in that he's not so much a base dealer but the guy's just an off the charts hitter so you know i have to wait for him though he's not even draft eligible though until 2018 he's a surefire number one overall pick probably would have been the number one overall pick this year would be so next year, and will be so presumably barring injury if he uh, when he comes out in 2018. He's on Clemson, but how cool is it to have a guy named Beer?
0: Uh, better than having a guy named Soda, I guess. Uh, now, now when when you're because the league is so deep and the uh, pool of players is so deep uh, in this league, uh, how do you calibrate? When you're picking guys, are, do you set a target year? Like, say, 2020 is going to be your year to really, to really go for it and try to adjust who you pick up. Because when you have a lot of prospects, one of the problems people have with teams that are building through prospects, even major league teams, is trying to figure out when they all come to fruition, if you will. It's like building a wine cellar and trying to get all your, trying to get all your wines to to mature on this uh, at roughly the same time, so you can really go to town on, uh, I guess, drinking a lot of wine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think the, the most important thing in a dynasty um, format is to fully commit to your strategy and be prepared to flip that switch from contention to rebuilding and from rebuilding to contention instantly. So, at some point, hopefully, in the next two years, I will switch from hoarding prospects to trading prospects for current major league assets, um, and, and but if you are in a constant... Um, mindset where you're just trying to collect amateur talent or minor league talent, you'll never get over the hump because that talent will never mature simultaneously in order to enable you to actually win a league. You're going to have to at some point. They're like your little children. you got to send them out into the world. It's tough to lose those guys that you've been waiting for for a lot of years. Um, but just when they're ready to pop, you got to assume that there's maybe only a 40% chance that they actually do, and you have to trade those in for some surefire major league hitters and pitchers.
0: I was going to say that one of the challenges in a rebuilding project like that is the relatively low success rate of even the top prospects. We've all had stories of uh, rubbing our hands together with Glee and uh, saying, I got Bubba Starling, I got Bubba Starling. And of course, it doesn't turn out that Bubba Starling's worth too much in fantasy baseball or real baseball, for that matter. And so, uh, it it behooves a, a somebody to make a, a trade, as you as you mentioned, where you take a guy that everybody's real excited about and say, "I hate to lose him, but if I can get a established, productive major leaguer right now because this is my year, then you got to do it and uh, and just suck it up."
2: Yeah, exactly. Like you're pretty much buying all of the 50% star probabilities when you're in the rebuilding phase, and then you're trading um, all of them when you're in the actual contention phase. And uh, hopefully enough of those 40% guys have actually materialized into being um, valued major league assets. And and so once you reach that, that tipping point, then I think you have to... Um, pretty much turn all of the uh, super prospects off of your roster, especially in a format like ours. Like, a lot of guys that we have are guys that are um, still in college. Uh, I don't draft high school players, generally speaking. Uh, There there are exceptions. I mean, I did have Bryce Harper in this league when he was, like, 15. Um, But you have to actually, um, you know, be – be careful about that because when the window gets really long, especially with pitchers, high school pitchers, it's just not something that that I find uh, very tenable. So I'm looking more at, like, college pitchers because I think that, you know, in the the league that we have now, in the the real major leagues, these prospects are coming up, like, really quickly. So somebody like Cal Quantrill, he could be in the Padres rotation by next June.
0: Yeah, he could uh I've I've heard some people argue that you're actually better off with, uh, with high school guys because the guys that end up going to college, especially pitchers, get so abused by coaches who see no benefit in, uh, in not riding their hot horse until it b- basically breaks down. Whereas if you get them out of high school and into your own organization, you can do a much better job monitoring innings, monitoring workload, getting mechanics right, and so forth, which is something that you miss out on with a college pitcher for all of the attendant reasons I mentioned.
2: That might be true. I I mean, I think that there's a big big awareness now that you have to actually um, monitor pitch counts really at like all levels. So I don't, I mean, I'm sure there are some exceptions that are noteworthy, but I think generally the college managers are pretty good about that. I don't worry about that much. I just think that pitchers are just, you know, there's no, there's no like injury prevention um, approach that, no matter how good it sounds, actually seems to work. <laughs> so, uh, I you know it's just it's the old pin step, right? There's no such thing as pitching prospects. So, I, I mean, I guess uh, due to injuries, that's just the case. I mean, look at the Mets season, man. I mean, you know, we we joke about it, but if this Mets season had a title, it could be called a farewell to arms. <sighs>
0: Michael, you tweeted recently about fantasy darling jerks and Profar, he's having a really good year, but you said most of his excellence in his minor league career has to be age-adjusted to rank great because it's not great in and of itself. What did you mean by that?
2: Yeah, and then uh, that was a while ago, and then shortly after that, like Profar has really hit the skids. He started out strong. I just meant that when we're age-adjusting prospects, for their level, I get doing that, and I think we do have to do that. Um, what happens, though, is that we're, we're kind of like inflating their their actual production, and we're, I think, adding another layer of speculation to it, rather than just having the numbers themselves. I mean, ideally, you want a guy who's on the younger side for his level, and who who is also um, consistently excellent. At all of his levels uh, that's obviously a rare prospect but I think that that's the safer prospect so you know with the Mets right now there's Dominic Smith who's a first baseman and in a dynasty format I like first baseman because they tend to be underrated by the prospect people because they don't have the position versatility but for all the purposes of our games they're very good so um, I, I kind of like to collect first baseman but Smith is a vexing case because I mean, his performance at AA has been really good when you adjust for his age. But in a vacuum, I mean, he's got like, I think, an 830 or so OPS at AA. That's that's, uh, good, I guess, but it's not great. It's only great when you look at how old he is.
0: And I guess the theory is that because he's young for the level, that uh, if he were a couple of years older at, the same, at that same level, he'd probably be doing even better. But I think uh, history has shown that's not always the case.
2: Yes, exactly. That, I mean, it's kind of like when the Mets had a 16-year-old pro- prospect that came up through their system and was young for every level, Fernando Martinez, and people speculated that because of his rather pedestrian performance at each level, due to the fact that he was so young for those levels, he was a really good breakout superstar uh, candidate, and that never really materialized. So that's just one example, obviously, an anecdotal, but it's something that's kind of stuck with me as as uh, a, a warning. And Carlos Gomez was kind of the same way, and Carlos Gomez has turned out to be a good major league player, but not, not the great one that um, perhaps that kind of pedigree Uh, for his age and level would have initially suggested.
0: I know you're a very big follower of the Mets. You've already mentioned them a couple of times. A lot of fantasy owners and Mets fans have been really down this year on Michael Conforto as he struggled, especially uh, later on in the season. Uh, Manager Terry Collins certainly down on him. They actually demoted him from May 22nd through June 19th. He was batting, I think, 137 and slugging 288. And all along, you were advising everybody to just calm down. Why were you so confident about Michael Conforto?
2: Well, I thought he he was such a good uh, college hitter, and his success um, last year was so profound uh, that I just thought that he was um, definitely going to rebound. Uh, The strikeouts and the walks weren't really out of hand. Um, According to Inside Edge, his well-hit data was strong, and obviously he was having some problems with uh, left-handed pitching especially but I just thought that the fact that the Mets were so c- cognizant of limiting his at-bats against left-handed pitching and benching him against lefties was was working to his detriment and I just thought that that would all be ironed out as the season progressed and obviously that proved to be false so um even though he was sent to Las Vegas and he really hit lights out there uh... he doesn't really seem to have a place on this team right now the way the current roster is constructed for this year but I would definitely be a Conforto buyer next year and this isn't a case where I'm not really the type where I chase my bad house like I'm more interested in being right tomorrow than I am about being right yesterday like I don't really care what I said yesterday I just firmly believe that Conforto is going to be a good hitter still
0: you said uh, also not in that particular tweet but elsewhere that you were kind of frustrated by the way Terry Collins and the Mets brain trust were treating Conforto and in that you suggested that maybe it was undermining his own ability to believe in himself because they were sitting him down they weren't playing him regularly he'd go you know 0 for 8 or something like that and that would be banished to the bench they just didn't seem to be showing any uh, any confidence in him and you you surmised that maybe that might have led to a a bit of lack of confidence in himself.
2: Yeah, I think like he, he started the year at like, uh, a house of fire, was elevated to the number three spot in the lineup where not only I but most uh, observers, including Keith Hernandez, felt that he was going to be for the next 15 years. And um, then he went into a slump. And then I think what the Mets initially did was they were like, you can't hit lefties, so they benched him against lefties. And then as soon as he started slumping, or shortly thereafter, they started moving him uh, down the lineups, kind of like punishing him. And I think what that does, it's human nature, you know especially for a younger person. When somebody, um, I, I think it's best to ignore, to accept the fact that hitters especially are going to get into slumps and pretty much be cool about it as far as, either you know not benching them and also not moving their place in the lineup because I think once you do that, you're just kind of telegraphing to that player that, oh, yeah, you're in a slump. Remember that because now you're hitting seventh. You were hitting third. I, and, but it's a fine line. I mean, I get at some point you have to make a, an adjustment if you're trying to win, but I just think that with a player, with a hitter of uh, Conforto's uh, um, pedigree, I think you have to be willing to invest uh, short-term in order to realize some long-term benefits that that are, in my opinion, uh, that were likely then and remain likely now.
0: You said that you were wrong about Michael Saunders of the Blue Jays. As we speak, I think his uh, batting average is around 264, not so great. Certainly well off where he was a month ago or so. Uh, but he's still sporting an 843 OPS, which is pretty good. I was I was with you. I didn't think Michael Saunders was going to do anything this year. And here he sits with 23 home runs uh, and uh, this pretty decent OPS. He's hitting both sides pretty well. Uh where did you and I go wrong, or did Michael Saunders just somehow go right?
2: Well, Saunders was a guy who people expected things from, and then he he just was never able to really stay healthy. So, you know, um, that added a whole other level of uncertainty, I think, to his assessment where you not only had to expect him to rebound and, and hit as as was expected earlier in his career, but to also a recover from the rather sparse playing time in that intervening period. And also, um, to remain healthy. So that I think is the the kind of bet that I don't typically make unless the price is essentially free. And if I recall correctly, the price for, uh, for Saunders in the preseason run-up to the season was was not free. I think it was basically, um, you know, a, a lower but still significant mixed league price as far as a draft pick is concerned.
0: In all of his previous seasons coming into the year, he had a two hundred ninety BABIP, about a two hundred thirty batting average. This year, the BABIP is up around three thirty, Again, well off his high a little earlier this year. His batting average is about 30 points higher than this. There's a, a fairly big jump in extra base hits from 8% to almost 12. Don't all of these sudden increases holler regression to you, or is it possible he's setting a new baseline?
2: I, I, I only believe in, in uh, regression... At a significant level, because obviously all players who are having great seasons are likely to regress. Um, But but in terms of it uh, factoring it into uh, a projection at a significant level, it only really concerns me when with something like BABIP, when his well hit data doesn't support that level of BABIP. Like in other words, if a hitter or a pitcher is uh, really good at generating strong contact. Or for the pitcher, for the pitcher limiting it, then I will. I have a like a formula where I come up with an expected uh, BABIP for the hitter and for the pitcher based on that well-hit data. And if as long as that's not really too far out of line, then I don't really care if their BABIP was uh, well above or well below the league averages. And of course, with hitters who control outcomes uh, and batter versus pitcher matchups far more than the pitchers do, those higher than average BABIPs are are definitely more um,
5: projectable.
0: Well when you talk about hard hit rate and we talk about BABIP and there are there are measures of how quickly these things settle out and become real, um, is, is hard hit rate any better at being uh, sort of consistent and predictive than BABIP itself? That is to say If uh, you see a sudden increase in hard hit rate or a sudden decline in hard hit rate, is that more trustworthy than the ensuing result? As far as Babip is concerned,
2: I hope so. Because if not, then what do we have? Really, like we we pretty much just have you know everybody's average, and all all of the performance that they have is is uh, random. That would be very depressing. So I I think. Intuitively, to me, uh, there are elements of BABIP that seem um, more random and luck-based. And then there are others that seem more skill-based. So what I'm trying to do is to not just say that BABIP is is purely a luck-based statistic. I'm trying to find the degree to which skill is influencing those averages.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, if you look at hard hit uh, data and I think uh, trajectory data as it's getting more and more um, granular is helping too, but a guy who hits a lot of balls in that sweet spot for line drives and is making good contact on those line drives and he's not getting good BABIP results, then you kind of have to put it down to bad luck or at least a little more than you would for a player who had a a wider range of likely out outcomes who's, who's in the same boat. So I think if we focus on the skill of hitting the ball hard and hitting it on a line, I think that uh, under those circumstances, we can look at a Babbit result and say, I don't trust it, whereas under certain other s- skill combinations, we might say, I don't like that Babbit but I'm not sure I can mistrust it.
2: Yeah, and, and there's also, you could just often look at isolated slugging for the hitters and isolated slugging allowed for the pitchers, too. Like, those are also good stats that we've had for forever. Um, Although isolated slugging allowed for pitchers is a hard stat to find. Uh, But I I think those are useful as well. I I just, you know, uh, the one caution that I have is I don't like well-hit data that only includes balls in play and not homers. And I don't like well-hit data that doesn't include strikeouts. So in other words, um, a strikeout doesn't count as limiting uh, as weak contact, but if the guy actually makes better contact on your pitch, it, on your pitch, by weakly hitting the ball instead of like say missing it completely, then that counts. Um, that to me doesn't make any sense. So that's why I gravitate more towards the inside edge data that I get, where they actually include strikeouts uh, as in their well hit averages.
0: Yeah, we do too. At BaseballHQ.com, a few years ago, I came up with a metric called Hard Contact Index, where we basically took what was fairly simple hard hit data at the time, multiplied it by their contact rate, that is how often they didn't strike out, and came up with a, a level based on both of those things. We wanted a guy who put the bat on the ball and who hit it hard. And then when you multiply the two things together and indexed it against the league, it turned out that if you found guys who were high up on the hard contact index list but who were not getting good results, they made pretty decent bets because either they were hitting the ball hard, even though maybe striking out a little more than you'd like, or they were striking out less than uh, than that and making decent contact, and that way they were putting the ball in play and putting the ball in play with authority.
2: Yeah, like, what I want to get away from is, say, a hypothetical hitter who has 10 at-bats, strikes out nine times, and in the 10th at-bat, you know, hits a line drive. I don't want his well-hit rate on balls in play to be 1,000. You know, like, that's crazy to me.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. Okay, let's go to the Baseball HQ forums just for a change of pace. I went in there the other day and uh, wanted to ask you for your comments on some of the questions that were being raised by people there. Let's start with a forums question. A guy calls himself Bolton Wanderers. I don't know if you follow the English Premier League, but that's a soccer club over there. He has a uh, keeper slot to fill for what he calls the future. I'm not quite sure what that means, but he can't decide between Keon Broxton of Milwaukee or Kevin Pilar of Toronto. Who would you choose?
2: I'm not a big Pilar fan. I mean, what are what are your thoughts? I mean, you're you're up there, obviously, and closer to the Blue Jays. I mean, I know that he's a good glove and he's going to get you steals. I just don't really have a firm belief in him as a hitter. So, um, do you share that, or or are you uh, more bullish than I am on
0: Pilar? I may be even less bullish than you are, actually, Michael. the uh, The problem is he just won't draw a walk, and he doesn't really have enough bat. To, to carry himself. They started him off as the leadoff hitter earlier in the year and of course his on-base percentage is under 300 and finally somebody noticed, hey, this guy never gets on base. Ergo, he never scores and they gradually started pushing him down the lineup and down the lineup and down the lineup and for all of his foot speed in the field, he actually is not that great of a stolen base guy either. I, I just don't see why Kevin Pillar is is that interesting, especially to fantasy players. Keon Broxton's a bit more of a, of a black box to me. I don't know that much about him because I don't play a national league but uh it seems to me that if I was gambling on a on a long-term future I take Broxton just because he seems to at least have a pathway to getting better and I don't see Pilar that way
2: yeah Broxton so so this year 774 um OPS in the in the majors obviously in 193 at-bats and it was 924 in Colorado, which is always like tricky. Like, I don't know how to adjust those Colorado stats. It's almost like well, the Mets have their minor league um, uh, AAA team in Las Vegas, and it makes it almost impossible to assess pitcher or hitter quality. So, um, you know, the problem obviously it with Broxton is he strikes out so much, but the walk rate actually is pretty good. And, you know, he has a 360 on base percentage. Versus a 244 average. That is a sweet differential. And so he's actually a guy that's probably going to have more future value um, in an OBP league. And 22 steals, man. 22 of 25. He was only 18 for 24, uh, sorry, 18 for 26 in, in AAA. Now he's 22 for 25 in the majors.
0: That's twice as many bags as Pilar has this year and, uh, and a higher success rate, quite a bit higher success rate. Uh,
2: He's 26, though. That's the, that's the other tricky thing about him.
0: Yeah, you still get five or six years of peak. That's all right.
2: Yeah, former third-round pick, which is you really want to look at um, draft order. It is predictive with prospects. So, you know, third-round is good
0: forum participant john e plays in a national league four by four and he's in a tight race with homers and rbis the tightest right now he has kirk Nieuwenhuis as his fifth outfielder but he also has matt adams and michael conforto whom we talked about coming off the dl they have to be activated or he has to release them so you get one pick uh Neuenheis, adams or conforto
2: that's just for the rest of the year
0: i think so yeah
2: i don't like any of those guys that, that, that strictly comes down to who happens to be playing at that moment. And what I do, really, is I just look at the last seven days and just pick the guy with the most
0: at-bats. Water Shark nineteen sixty seven has nine cheap young pitchers to choose from. I'll mention some of the names and get your opinion about which uh, which guy you like the most or a couple. Vincent Velasquez and Mike Foltynewicz both over ten bucks. Under five, he's got uh, Tyler Anderson, Mike Lorenzen, Jonathan Gray, Jared Eichhoff, Erodas Vizcaino, Carl Edwards, and Adam Ottavino. Any names jump out there?
2: Uh, I was going to talk about Velasquez. Like, when we got to, to that part, I think, you know, he's a breakout candidate for me, given his swinging strike rate and also just his um, a strikeout rate generally. So, I, I, I really think that next year he could he could be a, a valuable mixed league asset, um, sort of like, you know, a, a solid, like, number three fantasy starter with a lot of strikeout upside, especially in leagues that have innings limits.
0: Fifteen bucks worth, though?
2: This is an only league or a mixed league?
0: National League only, yep.
2: Yeah, he's definitely worth 15 in National League only.
0: Steven Strasburg's situation has been a topic in several forums threads. Of course, he got off the DL recently, lasted, I think, three innings a little bit more, then left with what the team is calling for now, a strain in his flexor mass of his Tommy John repaired right elbow. Given the history here, how would you view Steven Strasburg as a fantasy bet for 2017?
2: Terrible. Terrible like he always is. I mean, he's great when he pitches, but the problem is you got to pay so much for him that there's no discount. So it costs you badly when he when inevitably m- misses time. So I, I just don't really get anybody ever taking Strasburg at his ADP.
0: A while back, Slayman992003, don't know what that means, wondered in the forum about Dansby Swanson's trade value in a keeper league. What's your take on Swanson and his value for 2017 and then longer term for keeper leagues?
2: Well, you know, the, the power hasn't really been there, um, but the good thing about him is the strikeout rate is very manageable, and he, and he has a, a good uh, OBP. I think we can project going forward. But the the lack of power in in this brief audition, even though it's only 73 at bat, um, you know, two homers, three doubles, that's a little troubling for somebody with his pedigree, especially like when you're a number one overall pick, you're expected to, uh, you know, at least have an average power tool. And I don't know if that tool exists for him.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. A lot of fantasy owners, Michael, including Boots Day on the HQ forums. I don't know if you remember Boots Day from back in the days with the Expos. Uh, a lot of owners enjoyed a nice ride with Josh Tomlin of Cleveland through the first half of the season. Nine wins, a three fifty one twelve 12 line in the second half. The wheels fell off, 2-6, and six, a seven sixty-three ra RA-155 whip. Most of the responses on the thread said the owner had to release Josh Timlin right away. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, once a guy like that starts to hit the skids, I think you have to expect that there's, like, probably either, like, something wrong or he's just hit a wall um, or whatever was working has just stopped working. So uh, there's no point in assuming that kind of damage to your statistics, especially at this stage of a fantasy season.
0: In a more general sense, Michael, how do you know when it's time to bail on a successful pitcher who does hit the skids? What, what are your markers for saying, I think I can hang on to him versus I think I got to cut him free?
2: Well, it doesn't always work out, obviously. Um, but the, the big thing is the strikeouts and the walks. Um, if, if that has significantly altered, then that, that might be an injury indicator. Um, in either direction, e- either if the strikeouts are down or the walks are up, and sometimes both of those happen, and then I think it's an easier call. So if there's something way out of line with uh, his career norms or his prior level of performance in the season over a significant sample size, which I would say uh, would be like at least uh, the last, like, 40 innings, then, then I think I would be more inclined to cut because the – the, the last thing you want to do is is um, you know just dig a deeper hole for yourself with some of these pitchers. And I think that pitcher performance is more bettable uh, on an actually bettable uh, period uh, on smaller sample size and say hitting performance. Like I would never uh, if a hitter is healthy and it's lumping, I don't care. Um, same thing if he's just red hot, if there's a lot of uh, history on the back of his baseball card, I'm going to be looking at that history way more than I'm going to be looking at the recent uh, spike in, in hitting performance. But with pitchers, I think there you could actually um, learn things uh, that are that are uh, bettable and and more predictive for the rest of the season uh, for for certain until there's like that off season reset.
0: There was an interesting question from a poster who just calls himself Greg on the HQ forums. I happen to know Greg is also a loyal listener to the HQ Radio podcast, so hey, Greg. Uh, Greg notes that Andrew McCutcheon turns 30 for the 2017 season. He had a very specific question. I'll broaden it, and I'll ask you, uh, Andrew McCutcheon's been a subject of some conversation among fantasy touts. Uh, what do you think Andrew McCutcheon looks like for 2017?
2: Um, I would, I would be in on McCutcheon. I think, you know... Let's call it like portfolio S, portfolio self, you know, like last year's cheat sheet. I think there are some instances where you have to forget about everything that happened with an established player like McCutcheon and just look at how you valued the player the prior March. And if there's a huge discrepancy, like in other words, if McCutcheon next year ends up costing you a price that if you got him for this year you would just think oh my god i'm going to win this league this is do you believe what i got mccutcheon for then i think you just have to go get mccutcheon
0: on the other hand you have to be a little concerned with some of the patterns especially stolen bases uh, 27 back in 2013 then 18 then 11 now six this year he's probably not going to break 10 that's a big part of andrew mccutcheon's fantasy value you you're not going to bet on a comeback in stolen bases are
1: you No,
2: I didn't really think of him as a stolen base guy uh, even this year. What did you say, 11 in 2014 or or 2015?
0: That's right, 11 last year, 6 this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's at that stage where it's like, why? But then I'm sure if McCutcheon wanted to run, he could steal bases. I don't know if that will ever become a thing with him. So I guess there's always the upside there because of his athletic profile. But um, that's not that's not anything i would have really factored significantly even into his 2016 value. He was more of like a uh batting average um he, and across the board uh guy and obviously the 10 steals that you could reasonably forecast were were not meaningless at all. They were certainly something that could, you know, maybe tip the scales a little bit in his favor at his draft slot. but mostly you're you're thinking um the surefire 300 average with the 20-plus homers and really uh, sweet RBIs and runs, which obviously didn't materialize this year, but that doesn't mean that that he can't rebound next year. How much will your league make you pay to find out if he rebounds? If that price is low, then pay it. If it's not, don't. A lot of this is going to come down to stupid stuff like how he hits in spring training.
0: That's true. Uh, are you at all concerned that after a string of 300 batting averages, then 292 last year, this year below 250? And his, uh, his uh, BABIP during this year has also plummeted to below 30, uh, to below 300, 30% hit rate, we call it at Baseball HQ. After uh, 30, uh, 30, 353, 355, 339, all of a sudden he's off 50 points. Any concern there?
2: Well, it's just a bad year. So when you have a bad year, like everything is going to look bad. I th- I consider the two ninety two last year random variation, and this this obviously this performance this year just um, uh, a horrible outlier on the bad side. Now maybe it'll come out that he was bothered by some sort of injury the whole year, or maybe there's some chronic thing that's wrong with him that we'll find out. But assuming that we don't, and it, assuming he has a clean bill of health as 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 far as uh, all the reports are concerned. Next offseason, I'm in.
0: HQ Forum member Battered Balls asked, uh, I should say Battered Balls, asked about Rockies catcher Tom Murphy, and particularly, does Murphy make a better keeper than Travis Darno or Francisco Cervelli? Uh, I'm going to go definitely over Cervelli. What, ca- what catcher of those three would be your pick for a keeper league?
2: Well, there's just so much upside in having a Rockies catcher. Um... So, you know, I think that that's, it's really hard to just toss that back. Murphy's been, like, a prospect for a while. He's 25. Um, I would say that his minor league performance uh, in Albuquerque, like, I don't know, like, how much that inflates the stats. I'm sure it, I think it does pretty significantly. I mean, he had, he had great numbers, but his 16 walks and 78 strikeouts. I mean, I wouldn't be, like, to me, like, he's exactly with Zanino. Like I, I, and and that's including the the bump that he gets from his park. So I, I don't I don't know. Like uh, definitely somebody who's rosterable, but not anybody that I think is going to be a difference maker to a championship season.
0: We have a forums member called Brewer Fan and he had an interesting note at the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. He said that from July 17th through September 3rd, only Giovanni Gallardo had walked more hitters than Jake Arrieta. I'm always suspicious of reports like these Michael because the endpoints seem to be somewhat arbitrarily chosen, but I did look into the whole situation and I can tell you this. Arietta's control rate has doubled from 1.9 walks per nine last year to 3.7 or so this year and his walk rate is up 6%. Uh, f- I'm sorry, from 6% to 10%. Those are not good signs.
2: No, they're not. And and here's the thing, like his walk rate for his career is 3.1. This year it's 3.5. So this is an argument for the back of the baseball card.
0: Well, considering that Arietta has the Cy Young, of course, and a reputation uh, as something of a control artist, can the new higher walk rate be real, uh, and how does it affect his value for 2017?
2: I think the he's he's not a huge strikeout pitcher, um, but the good thing about Arietta is he's really good at limiting hits. Again, like this will be his second year in a row if things hold for the rest of 2016 where he's led the league in lowest hits per nine innings. So um, that makes up for some of the walks. So I think you could like chop one walk off of his number, no matter what it is, just because he's so um, relatively hard to hit. So uh, uh, So I don't really think that that's a factor. The thing that I'd be more worried about with Arietta is how much are people going to make me pay for the wins in the ERA? Um, when the thing that I really want to pay for with a starting pitcher is strikeouts. And and with Arrieta, those strikeouts aren't great. So while I would like the bettable wins and, um, you know, the projectable ERA sub 3.00, uh, I, I don't want to have to pay so much for it that that strikeout rate is going to disappoint me. And I think I'm going to have to. So I, I'd be very surprised if I owned Arrieta next year anywhere.
0: You mentioned your go to stat for assessing pitchers or one of them is strikeouts minus walks per innings pitched. On that scale, Arietta last year was ninth among seventy seven qualifying starters, a top ten guy. This year there's eighty one qualifying starters. He's right in the middle, just forty first. Is this a reason for you to feel concerned about Arrieta's value and production?
2: Uh yeah, obviously that that is a big factor. Like I said, I mean the strikeouts are the big problem with him, but I think he's He's more like a Johnny Cueto in that, you know, he's just really hard to hit. Um, let's see, like his, his, his ISO this year is uh, very good. It's like 107. So that's, that's extremely good, especially when you consider the very low uh, starting point for his batting average against generally, which is 185, which is exactly what it was last year. So I think he's more, you know, if you felt good about whatever you paid for Cueto, feel good about paying that for uh, for Arietta.
0: Staying for a minute with uh, that strikeout-minus-walks-per-innings uh, metric, since we last spoke, I've been looking at it, and I thought of a refinement based on some discussions I've had with uh, Gene McCaffrey, our mutual friend, and that is uh, infield fly balls, pop-ups. He and I agree that infield fly balls are basically the equivalent of a strikeout because they are useless outs offensively. The base runners can't advance. There's very little chance to reach on an error, no chance at all to reach on a fielder's choice. It's just a useless out, which is really good for a pitcher. So in fact, generating a pop-up is pretty much the same as generating a strikeout, except that we don't count pop-ups as a category. If we add infield fly balls to the strikeout, so say strikeouts plus infield fly balls minus walks per pitched, pitch, all the top strikeout guys stay at the top of the rankings. Fernandez, Scherzer, Strasburg, Bumgarner, those guys. Danny Duffy, uh, interestingly enough. But we also see Drew Smiley and Marco Estrada jump up 18 or 20 spots in the rankings if we count pop-ups. Do you think I'm onto something here with this pop-up business?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the danger is you don't, you don't want to overfit, but I think it's definitely reasonable to... I mean, I I don't know if I would include it in that model because that's just something that I look at just for the simplicity of it. And especially, like, if I'm looking at a box score, I want to kind of have a sense for how that guy pitched that day by just looking at that. And you typically don't see, like, pop-ups in the box score. So, um, But I have no problem. Like, I I absolutely agree that pop-ups, infield flies, are something that should be factored into – The uh, quality of the pitcher and should be put into the certain out category. And similarly, there's things like hit batters and even things like, you know, those little things that Gene always talks about, which is holding on runners, stolen bases allowed, um, uh, you know, errors, you know, like those kinds of things that just, uh, subtract from a pitcher's value as well, especially the hit batters and the wild pitches. Like, because you know, every wild pitch obviously um, is is costing you basically a base.
0: I've actually argued with the uh, people that uh, are in, in charge of metrics at BaseballHQ.com dot com that our control our control metric we call, which is strike, basically walks per nine innings, should include hit batsmen and wild pitches and box because all of these things move runners forward or allow runners to be on there that shouldn't be on there uh, to move around closer. And it definitely affects their ERAs. There's no doubt about that. I checked into it and, and, uh, the poster child for it was AJ Burnett. You remember him? He always had a pretty decent, pretty decent walk rate. But when you factored in all the wild pitches and hit batsmen, all of a sudden he was mediocre at best. And and it reflected in his uh, ERA until he got to Pittsburgh, and they straightened out a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, Another beneficiary of counting these infield fly balls this year has been Rick Porcello, probably the leading candidate for the Cy Young in the American League because of the uh, 20 wins. By Baseball HQ's valuation, Porcello is about a $30 pitcher this year, largely because of those wins. How real do you think Rick Porcello is, and how do you like his chances of being, say, a second- or third-round pitcher again next season?
2: He'd be a guy that I would probably be be fading, assuming that his price is going to be significant. He's average in strikeouts, um, 7.5 per nine innings, which sounds good. But, you know, we have to just obviously um, – recalculate these statistics because the threshold numbers that we have come to expect and growing up around baseball for all these years are now rendered irrelevant because the strikeout rate for starting pitchers alone I think is um, uh, around seven point5 or 7 point7 if I r- recall correctly so he's actually averaged the slightly below average in the strikeout so I'm not going to ever pay for a guy, you know, especially about 20 wins is like a magic number. Um, And he has a lot of history where he has been rather pedestrian. And his SIP is 3.46. I mean, his regular ERA is 3.91. I don't know. Like, I'm certainly not going to pay a Cy Young price for Porcello.
0: Yeah, his strikeout per nine is 7.5 this year. I think it's bang on the average, or just slightly below. I'm very curious. I have Rick Porcello in a league that uh, I'm doing pretty well in, and and I have to say I'm very lucky that that I got 20 wins out of him. I also got a bunch out of Jay Happ as well. But they do seem, especially Porcello, because of the relatively mediocre strikeout rate, it seems like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors here, and I suspect he might get overpriced.
2: Yeah, I I think that that, that's... a very safe bet. Although, the one good thing that he has is the strikeouts and the walks. I mean, he's leading the majors 5.6, 5.55 strikeouts per walk, which is obviously a really good stat.
0: And it's why he shows up pretty high on that uh, strikeout minus walk metric as well. Uh, I mentioned uh, Arizona pitcher Robbie Ray is a top guy in your uh, strikeout per walks per innings pitch metric. There's a lot of disagreement at the Baseball HQ forums about Robbie Ray. Some of them think he's an ace in the making because he has a very high strikeout rate and some good performances this season, especially in the second half. While other people, including me, think Ray is still a speculative bet at best for 2017 because he's inconsistent and he has a pretty solid baseball card track record of mediocre results other than the strikeouts. Where would you fall on Robbie Ray for 2017?
2: Well, uh, he's definitely speculative. So the question is, like, how much are people going to make you pay to speculate? He's 24, almost 25. Um, his 50RA the, the last two years is 3.53, 3.50. So um, basically, uh, last year he was right along with his fifth. This year he's well below. So I think that 446 that we would bet against is something that we could maybe subtract a runoff of reasonably. When you look at, you know, 195 strikeouts and 155.1 innings, that's just insane. So yeah, I would definitely be uh, in on, on Ray. I mean, these pitchers take a long time. He obviously has stuff like he could end up being uh, a poor man's Arietta next year. Uh, I understand the environment in Arizona is an ideal, but it's not the worst in baseball. So, uh, I, I would definitely be a player if uh, in, in the Ray bidding um, and especially in the Ray drafting because I'm assuming he probably will go, I don't know, 15th or 16th round in a standard mixed league draft, and I think that's essentially free.
0: Not worried about 19 home runs uh, in just over 150 innings?
2: Well, I think the park is going to do that. You know, obviously that's that's uh, that's not good, but it's not terrible. I mean, for 200 innings, what would that be? Like 25 or 26? It's almost, you know, what you would expect.
0: He only gave up nine last year in 127 innings. That's why I thought maybe this was a. I don't know whether to mark that as a fluke or a change.
2: I, probably he, he, to smooth it out, just like figure what his career average is and project that going forward. So his career. Home runs per nine is like one. Um, this year it's 1.1. 1. 1. So, you know, figure one. So if he pitches 200 innings, that's like what? 22 homers?
0: Yes. Something like that, yeah. So that seems like a reasonable way to approach it. Uh, uh, one one more question, and then a quick one. Uh, forum member Larry Hockett is in a tight race uh, with all the offensive categories bunched, but especially stolen bases. He's going to activate one player f- to fill his open utility spot. His choices, uh, Andrelton Simmons, Aaron Judge, Logan Morrison, or Andrew Romine. And he grabbed Romine as a stolen base flyer. Under the circumstances, which of those p- players do you like?
2: Well, you know, I guess... I considering the steals, I definitely don't like Judge. I mean, Judge is a tall righty, uh, an extremely tall righty, one of the tallest righties ever, and that's just almost always uh, something that leads to you know poor hitting performance because tall righties tend to have long swings, and long swings are really bad, especially when you have the platoon disadvantage, two thirds of that bat.
0: And finally, somebody asked on the forums, is there any reason not to activate Clayton Kershaw?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I guess people probably have already activated him since he's pitched his first game. He wasn't really that impressive. I think if he's healthy enough to go, you have to just accept the fact that Kershaw is such an elite talent that even if he's compromised, he's probably still going to be good. Um, And if he's not compromised, he'll be great. So that's the range that you should expect and i think at this stage of the season you just have to gamble that he's recovered and that'll be great
0: yeah, I always answer these kinds of questions by saying, "What's your alternative?" Okay, you leave Clayton Kershaw on your bench, or, or don't pick him up, assuming that he's available in your league or whatever. Who are you starting in his place, and what chance does he have to be as good as Clayton Kershaw? And if the answer is, "I'm starting somebody who's nowhere near as good as Clayton Kershaw," why not gamble? I mean, I can see if you're very very tight in the ERA and ratio, and you're worried that Kershaw's still hurt and he's going to go out there and throw a you know two inning niner and run type effort, but really.
2: The way I look at it, too, as a thought exercise when I'm advising people on a question like this is imagine that you've lost. Now imagine that you've lost because you activated Kershaw and how you feel. And now imagine that you lost because you didn't and how you feel then. You obviously feel a lot worse if you lost because Kershaw pitched well and you didn't have him in your lineup, right? Right.
0: Absolutely. I think that's an excellent way to look at it. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. And, Michael, let's wrap it up. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about 2017. We're uh, about three weeks from the end of this year. Not much we can do anymore. Uh, so let's look ahead to 2017. If you were drafting a team in a, in a ordinary snake draft mixed league and you knew that you had one of the first five picks but not which one, how would you stack the first five picks for next season's draft?
2: I'm going to shock you here, Patrick. Well, I hope so. I like the last year's cheat sheet approach within reason. So my top five would be Trout, Harper, Betts, Altuve, and then I would really want like the eighth pick because I have like a grouping there of Arenado, Bryant, Machado, and Bogarts.
0: Not uh, Josh Donaldson up there anywhere?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, Donaldson, I guess, is in that mix with Arenado, Bryant. Yeah, definitely. So, so that, so basically, ideally, you want. You want the ninth
0: pick. I like your approach. I think I might go with uh, Altuve first overall next year just because of the position advantage you get. I don't think there's that much to choose between him and Trout. Although the other day I looked at the baseballhq.com valuation rankings and Trout is back on top by a dollar or two in a 5x5 format versus Altuve, but it's very close. And uh, boy, uh, uh, the second base advantage over all the outfielders seems to matter.
2: But here's my point with Trout. Trout might be the greatest player in the history of baseball. Like, why are you going to – I just can't pass that guy up for Altuve. I mean, maybe some of this is the fact that Altuve looks like the bat boy. I'm going to try to be more mature and not have that influence my thinking. But he's certainly not arguably uh, in line to become the greatest player in the history of baseball like Mike Trout is. So why wouldn't you take Mike Trout? And similarly with Harper, I'm just looking, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, Richman's McCutcheon. You know, McCutcheon you could probably get. God knows where he's going to go next year. But, but uh, Harper is going to be discounted. And, yeah, like he obviously had a disappointing season. And you could argue that the one season was the huge outlier. But I'm sorry, man. Like I told you earlier, I had Harper when he was 15 years old. Um, in a dynasty league. The guy, you know, had an insane pedigree that he fully realized last year and also was realizing this year until, uh, you know, who ended up walking him like all those times was, uh, that was the Cubs, right? Joe mm-hmm. Madden like walked him like 11 times and won like three game series or something. And then after that, he went into like a pretty epic slump. So, Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe he ended up like altering his approach and thinking about things where he should just be hitting. But I'm going to be betting on Harper for sure.
0: I'll tell you what, I have Mookie Betts in my American League tout team and he's been great for me. Uh, of course, he's having a tremendous year. I have a strong suspicion he's going to be overvalued that next year. And I'm wondering, when you look at what's going on this year, who's a hitter you think is going to be overdrafted or overpriced next year?
2: Well, I think Dozier is obviously the... The, the hitter is going to be overpriced because he might hit 50 homers and people are going to, you know, that's a big round number. And if he does it, he's already at 40. Uh, people are going to um, buy into that, but that's a guy with a lot of history. So I think we got to like, kind of uh, calm down, smooth it out, figure like who he's been for his whole career and project that for 2017. Hendricks also for the pedestrian K rate in today's game. Um, I respect him. He's a he's a uh, a good pitcher. He's not really a great modern pitcher in that he's not a strikeout dominant pitcher. Um, and Strasburg, who we talked about before, I just would never play. I, I'm sure he's going to go in the second or third round again next year, like he always does. And I just can't bet on his health whatsoever. Uh, and Fulmer a little bit for the same reason as Hendricks. He's the guy whose whose um, fantasy dollar value. Uh, it greatly exceeds his strikeout rate.
0: I'm curious, uh, assuming Clayton Kershaw is the number one pitcher because his injury concerns abate over the uh, offseason and he looks okay going through spring training. So we'll give Clayton Kershaw first pick overall. I I read something at Baseball HQ recently that said because of the eruption of hitting that Clayton Kershaw might not be a first-round player next year. What do you think of that?
2: I would have never taken Kershaw in the first round, not because he's not worth it, but just because you know, you not only have the injury risk, but I think the way, the easiest path to victory, and there is always like, it's always like, just pick the best players and you're going to win, obviously. But I think if you're trying to give yourself a tailwind as far as win probability, you have to try to get the surplus values uh, out of your pitchers as opposed to your hitters, because there's too much convergence in hitter valuation for you to really make hay. And there's way more divergence in pitcher valuation. So you can end up with easily with somebody who you think is like the 17th best pitcher who ends up going like 36th in your draft. That's never going to happen with a, with a hitter.
0: Well, let's let's speculate about that. Uh, based on this year, we're going to see some, especially established players, having poor years. We mentioned Andrew McCutcheon. You mentioned Bryce Harper, for that matter. Who's a hitter that you think is going to be underdrafted or underpriced in 2017 drafts?
2: Well, similarly, I think uh, Korea. Like, I, I think the. Um you know, he, he had such a great rookie year. He was an elite prospect. He was a guy that I actually traded to win a championship in that dynasty that we talked about earlier. Um, and I had him as, uh, you know, basically like a, a high school hitter, like prior to him being drafted. So as soon as he was taken first overall, I traded him. And it worked out, you know, because flags fly forever, obviously, but I wish I had him now. And I think that you could pretty much use that last year's cheat sheet uh, approach to him as well. And he's going to be going at a steep discount relative to this year's price, which I never liked. Um, but I still think that he's going to be, uh, very bettable at his 2017 draft price.
0: How about a pitcher? We mentioned uh, that, uh, Rick Porcello is probably going to be overpriced, but there's been a number of pitchers this year who've had, um, not, not bad years, necessarily, just unexpectedly poor years based on who they were. Are, who's a pitcher that jumps out at you as a good buy-low opportunity for 2017?
2: Well, it's not really like a buy-low, but the pitcher that I like that I don't think is going to be properly valued uh, is Sindergard. Like I think that he's in the Kershaw class, and I don't think anybody's going to make you pay near a Kershaw price.
0: Not worried about the elbow problems and the, uh, uh, the all the trouble that uh, Noah Syndergaard went to earlier this year to say it's not a structural problem. It's not a structural problem. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a structure and it's a problem.
2: Well, he, you know, he's, he's at 159 innings. Um, he's probably going to finish with about 175, assuming the Mets don't make the playoffs. If they do, he's probably going to be up to, you know, 185 or so. Uh, so I think he'll be, good to go. I mean, all all pitchers are such huge injury risks, especially the guys that throw hard, but we want the guys that throw hard, and nobody throws harder than Syndergaard. So um, the bet that you're making with Syndergaard is that he's a freak in the Nolan Ryan class that just has such uh, physical stature and dominance that he can uh, withstand his elite velocity better than, say, somebody like Strasburg.
0: And finally, let's look at at the idea of breakouts. Uh, Who are players that are probably under the radar based on their 2016 performance, but who have done something that caught your eye and make them a, a betting favorite for you as a breakout hitter?
2: Uh, guys that come up and have a huge level of success, like uh, after July, are often values. Uh, Trey Turner, I think, is is going, especially at, given how people have been burned with uh, Korea. I think he is going to be a... Uh, value at his adp next year unless it's second round uh, i mean i'd be all over trade turner in the third round i think he's 100 percent for real i always thought he was going to have at least average major league power uh, the on base skills and the stolen bases are top shelf he's probably in uh, an 80 runner um, so uh, you know and in that lineup hitting ahead of harper and and murphy he's probably a really good bet to score 110 runs uh, basically, I don't think that there's a high enough price that you could pay for Turner, and I doubt he's going to go in the first round. So um, that's kind of a little bit of a cheat. Uh, and the guy we mentioned before, Velasquez, would be my uh, pitcher that I would really like to get. I just think that this was a transition year, and he'll consistently dominate Here if he's healthy. Uh, but, of course, that's the caveat with all pitchers. His ERA is at a point where I don't think that anybody is going to um, fight you for him. And I think he's actually worth fighting for.
0: All right, Michael Salfino, it's been great. As always, uh, tell our listeners where they can keep track of your work.
2: i always on Twitter. That's at Michael Salfino. Uh, also, if you play fantasy sports, I do a uh, podcast with Scott Pianowski, another friend of your program, uh, the Breakfast Table Podcast, which you can get on iTunes, which is um, people really enjoy. Uh, and that's weekly to uh, pursue pursue your uh, fantasy football domination we will try to help you as best we can each week and also in the wall street journal and on yahoo yahoo for fantasy wall street journal for everything else
0: michael salfino it's always a great pleasure to talk with you i appreciate you taking the time you've been on the show two or three times this year i'm very grateful to you for helping us out we'll certainly uh, put you on the list for next year and hopefully we'll see you at first pitch arizona
2: Yeah, that would be great, man. I appreciate it. And it's always a pleasure, Patrick. Michael
0: Salfino writes regularly for Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. We have our Baseball HQ radio commentaries coming up. But first, let me fill you in about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com has fantasy baseball intelligence to help you be a winner. Listen to just a small sample of what's on the site this week. Our Buyer's Guide columnists, Stephen Nickrand and Doug Dennis, look at some early targets for 2017 among starting pitchers, batters, and relievers. And our ongoing daily call-ups coverage looks at late arrivals like Oakland first baseman Matt Olson and third baseman Renato Nunez, as well as Philadelphia outfielder Roman Quinn and every other prospect who gets called to the show. And in our speculator column, Ray Murphy looks at playing time today for September 16th of next year. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports and a daily. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, performance analysis, and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And remember. All of it only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it is time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers and weekend pitcher matchups. And leading off, it's our playing time segment where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at San Francisco's closer carousel and some speed options in Kansas City. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield.
6: Santiago Casilla's incredible run of six straight seasons with a sub-3 ERA is about to come to an end as the former Giants closer has given up 11 runs in just 22 innings in the second half of the season. Casilla lost his closer gig last week, and manager Bruce Bochy has called it a closer by committee. Hunter Strickland's the most popular option behind Casilla for some late-season saves, and he's had a decent but not dominant season with a 3.24 ERA, 3.72 expected, ERA and a 2.9 strikeout to walk ratio. Strickland picked up his first save of the year earlier this week, but then he also took a loss September 13th against the Padres. A potentially better name to target, especially in keeper leagues, is Derek Law. Law's been a force out of the Giants' pen in his rookie season with a 193 ERA and a 317 expected ERA. Law's stats are backed by some excellent underlying skills, notably a 50% ground ball rate, 5. 3 strikeout to walk ratio and a 137 base performance value or bpv all of which are very closer worthy numbers laws had elbow issues this season he just recently returned from the dl but if he can stay healthy look for law to be an option for saves this season and in 2017 To the American League, we go to Kansas City, where the disappointing season of Lorenzo Cain is probably over thanks to a wrist injury. Cain's absence opens the door for full playing time for a pair of speedsters, Paulo Orlando and Jared Dyson, both of which could make considerable impact if you're tight in the steals category down the wire. Orlando's hitting an impressive 294 this season with a 319 on base. He's got elite speed with a 147 speed score, which is roughly 50% better than league average and while he doesn't make a lot of contact at just 77 percent Orlando puts the ball on the ground which will only help him get on base if Kansas City chooses to be aggressive with Orlando who has only 12 steals this season the stolen base upside is certainly worth nabbing Dyson, on the other hand, is the stronger play of the two thanks to some excellent plate skills, namely a 9% walk rate and an 87% contact rate. Dyson's speed is right up there with Orlando's as well, and he's been more aggressive on the base paths, with 27 steals through just 258 at-bats on the season. Both Paulo Orlando and Jared Dyson will receive nearly everyday playing time with Alex Gordon in Kansas City's outfield the rest of the way. And if you're bunched up in the steals category, see if one's available, preferably Dyson, in your league to get those precious extra points down the stretch. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. Maybe not this year but possibly next. This week's frequent flyers, Cincinnati second baseman Jose Peraza and Los Angeles right-handed starter Brock Stewart. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. It's
7: season where Seattle's Robinson Cano has returned to form and Minnesota's Brian Dozier is challenging Mark Trumbo for the home run title. It's easy to see why Cincinnati Red second baseman Jose Peraza will probably be overlooked in most drafts in 2017. But wait. 2016 isn't even over yet, Jose Peraza could still help your team this season. In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers, we'll look at two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who may make excellent keepers for 2017, but who could also help your team in 2016, beginning with Cincinnati's Jose Peraza. Peraza, the centerpiece for the Reds of the three-team trade that sent Todd Frazier to the White Sox last December. 22-year-old Jose Peraza, according to the minor league baseball analyst, is a high-energy, top-of-the-order hitter. And in 2016, he hasn't disappointed. His 56 games with the Reds in 2016, he is batting .324 with two home runs and 24 steals. Do we also mention that Jose Peraza has 60 or more steals in two consecutive seasons of the Miners, 2013 and 2014, and they'll likely qualify at second base, shortstop, and outfield in 2017 in most leagues? Plus, Jose Peraza has maintained an 86% contact rate with the Reds in 2016. In other words, Jose Peraza, in a much smaller sample size of at-bats, has a better contact rate, 86%, than Nolan Arenado, May Machado, and even Miguel Cabrera, who is batting 333 with 15 home runs since the All-Star break. Of course, Jose Peraza, unlike Nolan Arenado, May Machado, and Miguel Cabrera, will not be considered in the early rounds of most 2017 drafts, nor should he be. That's why Jose Peraza, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. And with Billy Hamilton on the disabled list, Jose Peraza, who is capable of playing center field, is definitely worth a flyer in the final weeks of the 2016 season, especially in keeper leagues. Another player worth a flyer, especially in keeper leagues, is 24-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers right-hander Brock Stewart who was awarded the Branch Rickey Minor League Pitcher of the Year by the Dodgers on September 2nd. Yet most fantasy owners will target Julio Urias and Jose De Leon in their 2017 drafts, making Brock Stewart a relative bargain on draft day. After all, Brock Stewart did post a 1.79 ERA in 21 minor league starts this season with 129 strikeouts and 121 innings pitched. That translates to a dominance rate of 9.5 strikeouts per nine, where we view a dominance rate of seven strikeouts per nine or higher to be elite. Plus, Brock Stewart has exhibited excellent command in the Miners in 2016, as shown by a strikeouts-to-walks ratio of almost seven, where we, at BaseballHQ.com, target pitchers with strikeouts-to-walks ratios of three or higher. So while other owners largely ignore Brock Stewart because of his 1 2 record with a 6.55 ERA and four starts at the major league level in 2016, you will remember that Brock Stewart, a six-round draft pick in 2014, moved quickly through three levels of the minors in 2016, beginning with Class A advanced Rancho Cucamonga to make his Major League debut on June 29th against the Milwaukee Brewers, where, despite giving up five earned runs, he struck out seven in only five innings of work. In his second Major League start on August 3rd in Colorado, Brock Stewart gave up nine earned runs and was pulled after four innings. But if we throw out his first two Major League starts and focus on his last three appearances, Brock Stewart would have a 1.38 ERA against the Pirates, Cubs, and Diamondbacks. Not bad! However, what would be even more impressive would be for you to consider adding Jose Peraza and Brock Stewart, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. A pitcher rated plus one or higher is a strong bet for you to start. A pitcher under minus 1.0 is a strong bet for you to sit. Between the ones, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. This week, we have four weekend matchups that are also possible 2017 fantasy auditions, including a dandy Saturday National League matchup with Pittsburgh right-hander Jameson Tyon in Cincinnati to face the Reds' right-hander Anthony DiSclafani. Here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick.
1: With only two weeks to go in the 2016 regular season, let's look at this weekend's matchups as your auditions for next season's draft targets. We'll focus on some youngsters for you to watch with an eye toward 2017. In the American League, we'll look in on a Saturday matchup between two right-handers in Baltimore's hitter-friendly Camden Yards. On Sunday, we'll be at neutral Progressive Field to analyze a post-hype Cleveland righty facing one of Detroit's two promising lefties. In the National League, we'll examine matchups in two of the majors' home run havens. We have a Saturday game between two touted right-handers in Cincinnati's Great American Ballpark, and on Sunday, we'll compare a Miami reclamation project with a Phillies' first mistake forgiveness project at Philadelphia's Citizens Bank Park. Let's begin in Baltimore on Saturday with the matchup between 26-year-old Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Matt Andreese and the O's 28-year-old ace Chris Tillman. Tillman has the edge in matchup ratings with a minus 0.11 compared with Andrees' recommended sit matchup rating of minus 143. But today, we're looking beyond just one game. Matt Andrees has attracted the attention of BaseballHQ.com analysts Stephen Nickrand and Derek Boyd. On August 8, Nickrand noticed that Andrees had one of the 50 highest swinging strike rates in a major league baseball, pointing out that he has three different pitches at more than 10%. On September 5, Nick Rand added that Andrees had a trifecta of terrible luck in August, with a hit rate of 39%, a strand rate of 57%, and a home run per fly ball ratio of 22%. Quote, his base skills were actually some of the best in the game. 9.9 dominance, 1.6 control, 40% ground ball rate, 155 BPV. His command sub-indicators supported his elite command too. He's a sneaky target. Unquote. In twice as many starts this season as last, Andrés has lowered his grip to 123 and his control to 1.9 walks per 9 innings. And he's raised his dominance to 7.7 strikeouts per 9, his command ratio to 4.1 strikeouts per walk, and his BPV to 110. In an August 13 facts and flukes analysis, Boyd concluded that Andrés's quote, surging indicators make him an interesting option, unquote. 28-year-old Chris Tillman has 16 of American League wildcard leader Baltimore's 80 wins. That's 20%, which is the percentage of starts for each member in a five-man rotation. And he's actually doing a bit better than that, as a 20-day DL stint for a sore shoulder reduced his percentage of starts to 18.6. But before you get too excited, wins, or quality starts, and a decent whip may be Tillman's best fantasy contributions. So even though he's the Orioles' ace, by no means should he be your ace. Steven Nickran took a deep dive into Tillman's skill set in a Facts and Flukes spotlight on June 5, and Derek Boyd revisited him in a Facts and Flukes column on August 6. Their conclusions align. An unfavorable strand rate made Tillman's 2015 look worse than it was, but his 2016 rebound only brings him back up to average in ways other than wins. Tillman has never had a dominance rate over 7.8 strikeouts per nine, and never had a first pitch strike rate or a swinging strike rate above league average. He had an expected ERA under 421 once, had a control rate under 2.9 walks per nine once, and has a career command ratio of 2.1 strikeouts per walk. His career base performance value is 53. Leave Tillman on your list, but keep him on the lower end. In the American League on Sunday at Cleveland, it's do or die for the Tigers' season, and the Detroiters will put one of their two prized young lefties' feet to the fire. Daniel Norris has a matchup rating of minus 008 for his start against 25-year-old Tribe right-hander Trevor Bauer and his matchup rating of minus 019. After rocketing from single A to the bigs with Toronto in 2014, Norris was traded to Detroit and has endured a series of physical setbacks, though none was arm-related. Since shaking off some rust after rejoining the rotation in August, the 23-year-old Norris has put together four good outings against division rivals. Granted, his two PQS dominant starts were against Minnesota, but Norris averaged a PQS 3, 100 pitches, and six innings pitched per game. In 24 innings over those four starts, Norris walked only six and struck out 27. Norris's overall improvements from 2015 to 2016 are reflected in raising his BPV to 96 and include raising his dominance rate to 8.8 strikeouts per nine, his first pitch strike rate to 65%, and his command ratio to 3.0 strikeouts per walk. Norris also has lowered his fly ball rate to 38% and his expected ERA to 431. It's a little tougher to read his whip, as his 120 from 2015 came from a favorable hit rate of only 26% and a strand rate of 75%, while this year's 146 comes from an unfavorable hit rate of 35% and a more fortunate strand rate of 79%. Still, Daniel Norris should definitely be on your radar for 2017. Now here's your bonus for today, coverage of the second Tiger Southpaw, Matt Boyd. Boyd and Norris both came to the Motor City from Toronto in the David Price deal at the 2015 non-waiver trade deadline. Since celebrating his return to the rotation with two PQS dominant 4s in July, Boyd had alternated four PQS Disaster 1s with four PQS 3s before his September 13 PQS Disaster 0. That inconsistency is reflected in Boyd's monthly BPVs of 153 for July, 55 for August, and 87 for September. In 11 starts over those three months, a strand rate of 80% creates a gap of nearly a run between Boyd's ERA of 345 and its expected ERA of 432. But Boyd's BPV of 94 is promising, as are his whip of 123, his control rate of 2.6 walks per nine, and dominance rate of 8.1 strikeouts per nine for a command ratio of 3.2 strikeouts per walk, his first pitch strike rate of 64%, and swinging strike rate of 10%. Don't ignore Matt Boyd next year. The Indians' Trevor Bauer may be progressing more slowly than we expected, but remember how high our expectations were. BaseballHQ.com's Dave Adler analyzed Bauer in a Facts and Flukes column August 3 and concluded, quote, Bauer still needs to work on his control, but his new pitch mix intrigues. Add Bauer to the list of potentially interesting keepers for 2017, unquote. Now in his third full season, Bauer's 2016 advances include career bests in whip at 129, ground ball rate at 49 percent, fly ball rate at 32 percent, and BPV at 76. He should indeed be on your draft list for next year. Turning to the National League on Saturday in Cincinnati, 24 year old righty Jameson Tyone of Pittsburgh makes his 16th major league start against the Reds' 26 year old right hander Anthony DiSclafani. DiSclafani has the highest matchup rating of any pitcher we're looking at this weekend, 028. Tyone's matchup rating is minus 032. Entering 2016 as a prime sleeper target after a strong finish to his 2015 season, Anthony DiSclafani missed the first two months with an oblique strain. Since then, he's benefited from a strand rate of 81%, but he has a whip of 116, an expected ERA of 384, a control rate under 2 and a dominance rate of nearly 8 for a command ratio of 4.3, and a BPV of 109. This week, BaseballHQ.com pitcher-buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickran wrote, quote, Few starting pitchers have been more skilled in the second half than DeSclafani. 8.3 DOM, 1.5 control, 39% ground ball rate, 125 BPV. He also has made big gains against lefties this season. There's a lot to like here. Unquote. Anthony DiSclafani will not be a sleeper in 2017, so you'd better bump him up your draft list a little. Jameson Tyone may not have had a player box in our 2016 baseball forecaster, but in our minor league analyst list of top prospects for fantasy impact, he ranked number 39. He was rated a 9D prospect, meaning we gave him a 30% probability of reaching his full potential as a number one starter. After reaching AAA in 2013, Tyone did not pitch in 2014 or 2015 due first to Tommy John surgery and then sports hernia surgery. He began this season with 10 outstanding outings back at AAA before getting the call to the show. He needed to rest his weary shoulder for the first half of July, but in 88 innings since his June 8th debut, Tyone has walked only 13 while whiffing 72. He owns a whip of 109, an expected ERA of 331, a ground ball rate of 54%, a fly ball rate of 25%, and a BPV of 129. You definitely need to target him on your 2017 draft list. In the National League on Sunday, Miami sends right-hander Andrew Kashner into the City of Butterly Love with a matchup rating of minus 051, as the fightin' fills counter with 24-year-old right-hander Alec Asher and his small sample-size matchup rating of 018. Neither of the two is worth worrying about too much this offseason. Andrew Kashner has not been able to build upon his promising 2013 and 2014 seasons with San Diego, as a series of elbow, shoulder, and other injuries has taken its toll. In an August 4 Facts and Flukes column, BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Pyron concluded that Kashner's skills have receded. In 24 outings so far this season, Kashner is posting career worsts as a starter for ERA, whip, batter's faced per game, control, command, first pitch strike rate, swinging strike rate, and BPV. Leave him off your list for 2017. 24-year-old Alec Asher also is regressing going from a prospect we ranked as a 7B with a 70% probability of reaching a number 4 starter upside in 2015 to a 6A with a 90% probability of reaching a number 5 starter upside this season. He came to the Phillies from the Raiders in the Cole Hamels deal at the non-waiver trade deadline last season. Asher was suspended for 80 games this season after using PEDs following a broken shin. He has good size at 6 feet 4 inches and 230 pounds, and he can locate his pitches well, but he has yet to develop velocity above 91 miles per hour, and he can let his fastball become too straight. Asher's curve, slider, and changeup are no more than ordinary. After seven unsuccessful starts last season, his first two starts this season may have led to a mirage of improvement, but they're based on a hit rate of 16% and a strand rate of 80%. His expected ERA was 584 last year and is 548 this year. His 2015 BPV was 20, and his 2016 BPV is minus 20. He may still improve, but to target him expecting that improvement would be a mistake. So using this weekend's matchups as auditions for your 2017 draft list, you can add Matt Andrees, Chris Tillman, Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, Trevor Bauer, Anthony DiSclafani, and Jamison Tyone. But even in deeper leagues, let others take their chances on Andrew Kashner and Alec Asher. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 44 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest expert for this Friday edition of our show, Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. He's a really original thinker about baseball and fantasy baseball, does a great job with fantasy football too if you play that game, and he's a favorite guest of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups Analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating, because that helps us keeps the podcast because that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another original and perceptive baseball thinker. It's Joe Sheehan on the final show of the 2016 regular season. Be sure to join us again on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. and so long.